Remember that quick fix is a mirage. Building and repairing relationships takes time. If you become impatient with his apparent lack of response or his seeming ingratitude, you may make huge withdrawals and undo all the good you've done. After all we've done for you, the sacrifices we've made, how can you be so ungrateful? We try to be nice and you act like this. I can't believe it. It's hard not to get impatient. It takes character to be proactive, to focus on your circle of influence, to nurture growing things, and not to pull up the flowers to see how the roots are coming. But there really is no quick fix. Building and repairing relationships are long-term investments. 6 Major Deposits Let me suggest 6 major deposits that build the emotional bank account. Understanding the individual Really seeking to understand another person is probably one of the most important deposits you can make, and it is the key to every other deposit. You simply don't know what constitutes a deposit to another person until you understand that individual. What might be a deposit for you, going for a walk to talk things over, going out for ice cream together, working on a common project might not be perceived by someone else as a deposit at all. It might even be perceived as a withdrawal, if it doesn't touch the person's deep interests or needs. One person's mission is another person's minutia. To make a deposit, what is important to another person must be as important to you as the other person is to you. You may be working on a high-priority project when your six-year-old child interrupts with something that seems trivial to you, but it may be very important from his point of view. It takes habit 2 to recognize and recommit yourself to the value of that person and habit 3 to subordinate your schedule to that human priority. By accepting the value he places on what he has to say, you show an understanding of him that makes a great deposit. I have a friend whose son developed an avid interest in baseball. My friend wasn't interested in baseball at all. But one summer, he took his son to see every major league team play one game. The trip took over six weeks and cost a great deal of money, but it became a powerful bonding experience in their relationship. My friend was asked on his return, do you like baseball that much? No, he replied, but I like my son that much. I have another friend, a college professor, who had a terrible relationship with his teenage son. This man's entire life was essentially academic and he felt his son was totally wasting his life by working with his hands instead of working to develop his mind. As a result, he was almost constantly on the boy's back, and, in moments of regret, he would try to make deposits that just didn't work. The boy perceived the gestures as new forms of rejection, comparison, and judgment. And they precipitated huge withdrawals. The relationship was turning sour, and it was breaking the father's heart. One day I shared with him this principle of making what is important to the other person as important to you as the other person is to you. He took it deeply to heart. He engaged his son in a project to build a miniature wall of China around their home. It was a consuming project, and they worked side by side on it for over a year and a half. Through that bonding experience, the son moved through that phase in his life and into an increased desire to develop his mind. But the real benefit was what happened to the relationship. Instead of a sore spot, it became a source of joy and strength to both father and son. Our tendency is to project out of our own autobiographies what we think other people want or need. We project our intentions on the behavior of others. We interpret what constitutes a deposit based on our own needs and desires, either now or when we were at a similar age or stage in life. If they don't interpret our effort as a deposit, our tendency is to take it as a rejection of our well-intentioned effort and to give up. The golden rule says to do unto others as you would have others do unto you. While on the surface that could mean to do for them what you would like to have done for you, I think the more essential meaning is to understand them deeply as individuals, the way you would want to be understood, and then to treat them in terms of that understanding. As one successful parent said about raising children, treat them all the same by treating them differently. Attending to the little things. The little kindnesses and courtesies are so important. Small discourtesies, little unkindnesses, Little forms of disrespect make large withdrawals. In relationships, the little things are the big things. I remember an evening I spent with two of my sons some years ago. It was an organized father and son outing, complete with gymnastics, wrestling matches, hot dogs, orangeade, and a movie, The Works. In the middle of the movie, Sean, who was then four years old, fell asleep in his seat. His older brother, Stephen, who was six, stayed awake and we watched the rest of the movie together. When it was over, I picked Sean up in my arms, carried him out to the car and laid him in the back seat. It was very cold that night, so I took off my coat and gently arranged it over and around him. When we arrived home, 
I quickly carried Sean in and tucked him into bed. After Stephen put on his jammies and brushed his teeth, I lay down next to him to talk about the night out together. How'd you like it, Stephen? Fine, he answered. Did you have fun? Yes. What did you like most? I don't know. The trampoline, I guess. That was quite a thing, wasn't it, doing those somersaults and tricks in the air like that? There wasn't much response on his part. I found myself making conversation. I wondered why Stephen wouldn't open up more. He usually did when exciting things happened. I was a little disappointed. I sensed something was wrong, he had been so quiet on the way home and getting ready for a bed. Suddenly Stephen turned over on his side, facing the wall. I wondered why and lifted myself up just enough to see his eyes welling up with tears. What's wrong, honey? What is it? He turned back, and I could sense he was feeling some embarrassment for the tears in his quivering lips and chin. Daddy, if I were cold, would you put your coat around me, too? Of all the events of that special night out together, the most important was a little act of kindness, a momentary, unconscious showing of love to his little brother. What a powerful, personal lesson that experience was to me then and is even now. People are very tender, very sensitive inside. I don't believe age or experience makes much difference. Inside, even within the most toughened and calloused exteriors, are the tender feelings and emotions of the heart. Keeping commitments. Keeping a commitment or a promise is a major deposit, breaking one is a major withdrawal. In fact, there's probably not a more massive withdrawal than to make a promise that's important to someone and then not to come through. The next time a promise is made, they won't believe it. People tend to build their hopes around promises, particularly promises about their basic livelihood. I've tried to adopt a philosophy as a parent never to make a promise I don't keep. I therefore try to make them very carefully, very sparingly, and to be aware of as many variables and contingencies as possible so that something doesn't suddenly come up to keep me from fulfilling it. Occasionally, despite all my effort, the unexpected does come up creating a situation where it would be unwise or impossible to keep a promise I've made. But I value that promise. I either keep it anyway, or explain the situation thoroughly to the person involved and ask to be released from the promise. I believe that if you cultivate the habit of always keeping the promises you make, you build bridges of trust that span the gaps of understanding between you and your child. Then, when your child wants to do something you don't want him to do, and out of your maturity you can see consequences that the child cannot see, you can say, son, if you do this, I promise you that this will be the result. If that child has cultivated trust in your word, in your promises, he will act on your counsel. Clarifying expectations. Imagine the difficulty you might encounter if you and your boss had different assumptions regarding whose role it was to create your job description. When am I going to get my job description? You might ask. I've been waiting for you to bring one to me so that we could discuss it, your boss might reply. I thought defining my job was your role. That's not my role at all. Don't you remember? Right from the first, I said that how you do in the job largely depends on you. I thought you meant that the quality of my job depended on me. But I don't even know what my job really is. Unclear expectations in the area of goals also undermine communication and trust. I did exactly what you asked me to do and here is the report. I don't want a report. The goal was to solve the problem not to analyze it and report on it. I thought the goal was to get a handle on the problem so we could delegate it to someone else. How many times have we had these kinds of conversations? You said. No, you're wrong. I said. You did not. You never said I was supposed to, oh, yes I did. I clearly said, you never even mentioned. But that was our agreement. The cause of almost all relationship difficulties is rooted in conflicting or ambiguous expectations around roles and goals. Whether we are dealing with the question of who does what at work, how you communicate with your daughter when you tell her to clean her room, or who feeds the fish and takes out the garbage, we can be certain that unclear expectations will lead to misunderstanding, disappointment, and withdrawals of trust. Many expectations are implicit. They haven't been explicitly stated or announced but people nevertheless bring them to a particular situation. In marriage, for example, a man and a woman have implicit expectations of each other in their marriage roles. Although these expectations have not been discussed, or sometimes even recognized by the person who has them, fulfilling them makes great deposits in the relationship and violating them makes withdrawals. That's why it's so important whenever you come into a new situation to get all the expectations out on the table. 
people will begin to judge each other through those expectations. And if they feel like their basic expectations have been violated, the reserve of trust is diminished. We create many negative situations by simply assuming that our expectations are self-evident and that they are clearly understood and shared by other people. The deposit is to make the expectations clear and explicit in the beginning. This takes a real investment of time and effort up front, but it saves great amounts of time and effort down the road. When expectations are not clear and shared, people begin to become emotionally involved and simple misunderstandings become compounded, turning into personality clashes and communication breakdowns. Clarifying expectations sometimes takes a great deal of courage. It seems easier to act as though differences don't exist and to hope things will work out than it is to face the differences and work together to arrive at a mutually agreeable set of expectations. Showing Personal Integrity Personal integrity generates trust and is the basis of many different kinds of deposits. Lack of integrity can undermine almost any other effort to create high trust accounts. People can seek to understand, remember the little things, keep their promises, clarify and fulfill expectations, and still fail to build reserves of trust if they are inwardly duplicitous. Integrity includes but goes beyond honesty. Honesty is telling the truth, in other words, conforming our words to reality. Integrity is conforming reality to our words, in other words, keeping promises and fulfilling expectations. This requires an integrated character, a oneness, primarily with self but also with life. One of the most important ways to manifest integrity is to be loyal to those who are not present. In doing so, we build the trust of those who are present. When you defend those who are absent, you retain the trust of those present. Suppose you and I were talking alone, and we were criticizing our supervisor in a way that we would not dare to do if he were present. Now what will happen when you and I have a falling out? You know I'm going to be discussing your weaknesses with someone else. That's what you and I did behind our supervisor's back. You know my nature. I'll sweet talk you to your face and badmouth you behind your back. You've seen me do it. That's the essence of duplicity. Does that build a reserve of trust in my account with you? On the other hand, suppose you were to start criticizing our supervisor and I basically told you I agree with the content of some of the criticism and suggest that the two of us go directly to him and make an effective presentation on how things might be improved. Then what would you know I would do if someone were to criticize you to me behind your back? For another example, suppose in my effort to build a relationship with you, I told you something someone else had shared with me in confidence. I really shouldn't tell you this, I might say, but since you're my friend, would my betraying another person build my trust account with you? Or would you wonder if the things you had told me in confidence were being shared with others? Such duplicity might appear to be making a deposit with the person you're with, but it is actually a withdrawal because you communicate your own lack of integrity. You may get the golden egg of temporary pleasure from putting someone down or sharing privileged information, but you're strangling the goose, weakening the relationship that provides enduring pleasure in association. Integrity in an interdependent reality is simply this, you treat everyone by the same set of principles. As you do, people will come to trust you. They may not at first appreciate the honest confrontational experiences such integrity might generate. Confrontation takes considerable courage, and many people would prefer to take the course of least resistance, belittling and criticizing, betraying confidences, or participating in gossip about others behind their backs. But in the long run, people will trust and respect you if you are honest and open and kind with them. You care enough to confront. And to be trusted, it is said, is greater than to be loved. In the long run, I am convinced, to be trusted will be also to be loved. When my son Joshua was quite young, he would frequently ask me a soul-searching question. Whenever I overreacted to someone else or was the least bit impatient or unkind, he was so vulnerable and so honest and our relationship was so good that he would simply look me in the eye and say, Dad, do you love me? If he thought I was breaking a basic principle of life towards someone else, he wondered if I wouldn't break it with him. As a teacher, as well as a parent, I have found that the key to the 99 is the one, particularly the one that is testing the patience and the good humor of the many. It is the love and the discipline of the one student, the one child, that communicates love for the others. It's how you treat the one that reveals how you regard the 99, because everyone is ultimately a one. Integrity also means avoiding any communication that is deceptive, full of guile, or beneath the dignity of people. A lie is any communication with intent to deceive, according to one definition of the word. Whether we communicate with words or behavior, if we have integrity, our intent cannot be to deceive. Apologizing sincerely when you make a withdrawal. 
when we make withdrawals from the emotional bank account, we need to apologize and we need to do it sincerely. Great deposits come in the sincere words. I was wrong. That was unkind of me. I showed you no respect. I gave you no dignity, and I'm deeply sorry. I embarrassed you in front of your friends and I had no call to do that. Even though I wanted to make a point, I never should have done it. I apologize. It takes a great deal of character strength to apologize quickly out of one's heart rather than out of pity. A person must possess himself and have a deep sense of security and fundamental principles and values in order to genuinely apologize. People with little internal security can't do it. It makes them too vulnerable. They feel it makes them appear soft and weak, and they fear that others will take advantage of their weakness. Their security is based on the opinions of other people, and they worry about what others might think. In addition, they usually feel justified in what they did. They rationalize their own wrong in the name of the other person's wrong, and if they apologize at all, it's superficial. If you're going to bow, bolo, says Eastern wisdom. Pay the uttermost farthing, says the Christian ethic. To be a deposit, an apology must be sincere. And it must be perceived as sincere. Leo Roskin taught, it is the weak who are cruel. Gentleness can only be expected from the strong. I was in my office at home one afternoon writing, of all things, on the subject of patience. I could hear the boys running up and down the hall making loud banging noises, and I could feel my own patience beginning to wane. Suddenly, my son David started pounding on the bathroom door, yelling at the top of his lungs, let me in. Let me in. I rushed out of the office and spoke to him with great intensity. David, do you have any idea how disturbing that is to me? Do you know how hard it is to try to concentrate and write creatively? Now, you go into your room and stay in there until you can behave yourself. So when he went, dejected, and shut the door. As I turned around, I became aware of another problem. The boys had been playing tackle football in the four-foot-wide hallway, and one of them had been elbowed in the mouth. He was lying there in the hall, bleeding from the mouth. David, I discovered, had gone to the bathroom to get a wet towel for him. But his sister, Maria, who was taking a shower, wouldn't open the door. When I realized that I had completely misinterpreted the situation and had overreacted, I immediately went in to apologize to David. As I opened the door, the first thing he said to me was, I won't forgive you. Well, why not, honey? I replied. Honestly, I didn't realize you were trying to help your brother. Why won't you forgive me? Because you did the same thing last week, he replied. In other words, he was saying, Dad, you're overdrawn, and you're not going to talk your way out of a problem you behaved yourself into. Sincere apologies make deposits, repeated apologies interpreted as insincere make withdrawals. And the quality of the relationship reflects it. It is one thing to make a mistake, and quite another thing not to admit it. People will forgive mistakes, because mistakes are usually of the mind, mistakes of judgment. But people will not easily forgive the mistakes of the heart, the ill intention, the bad motives, the prideful justifying cover-up of the first mistake. The Laws of Love and the Laws of Life When we make deposits of unconditional love, when we live the primary laws of love, we encourage others to live the primary laws of life. In other words, when we truly love others without condition, without strings, we help them feel secure and safe and validated and affirmed in their essential worth, identity, and integrity. Their natural growth process is encouraged. We make it easier for them to live the laws of life, cooperation, contribution, self-discipline, integrity, and to discover and live true to the highest and best within them. We give them the freedom to act on their own inner imperatives rather than react to our conditions and limitations. This does not mean we become permissive or soft. That itself is a massive withdrawal. We counsel, we plead, we set limits and consequences. But we love, regardless. When we violate the primary laws of love, when we attach strings and conditions to that gift, we actually encourage others to violate the primary laws of life. We put them in a reactive, defensive position where they feel they have to prove I matter as a person, independent of you. In reality, they aren't independent. They are counter-dependent, which is another form of dependency and is at the lowest end of the maturity continuum. They become reactive, almost enemy-centered, more concerned about defending their rights and producing evidence of their individuality than they are about proactively listening to and honoring their own inner imperatives. Rebellion is a knot of the heart, not of the mind. The key is to make deposits constant deposits of unconditional love. I once had a friend who was dean of a very prestigious school. 
he planned and saved for years to provide his son the opportunity to attend that institution, but when the time came, the boy refused to go. This deeply concerned his father. Graduating from that particular school would have been a great asset to the boy. Besides, it was a family tradition. Three generations of attendants preceded the boy. The father pleaded and urged and talked. He also tried to listen to the boy to understand him, all the while hoping that the son would change his mind. The subtle message being communicated was one of conditional love. The son felt that in a sense the father's desire for him to attend the school outweighed the value he placed on him as a person and as a son, which was terribly threatening. Consequently, he fought for and with his own identity and integrity, and he increased in his resolve and his efforts to rationalize his decision not to go. After some intense soul-searching, the father decided to make a sacrifice, to renounce conditional love. He knew that his son might choose differently than he had wished, nevertheless, he and his wife resolved to love their son unconditionally, regardless of his choice. It was an extremely difficult thing to do because the value of his educational experience was so close to their hearts and because it was something they had planned and worked for since his birth. The father and mother went through a very difficult rescripting process, struggling to really understand the nature of unconditional love. They communicated to the boy what they were doing and why, and told him that they had come to the point at which they could say in all honesty that his decision would not affect their complete feeling of unconditional love toward him. They didn't do this to manipulate him, to try to get him to shape up. They did it as the logical extension of their growth and character. The boy didn't give much of a response at the time, but his parents had such a paradigm of unconditional love at that point that it would have made no difference in their feelings for him. About a week later, he told his parents that he had decided not to go. They were perfectly prepared for this response and continued to show unconditional love for him. Everything was settled and life went along normally. A short time later, an interesting thing happened. Now that the boy no longer felt he had to defend his position, he searched within himself more deeply and found that he really did want to have this educational experience. He applied for admission, and then he told his father, who again showed unconditional love by fully accepting his son's decision. My friend was happy, but not excessively so, because he had truly learned to love without condition. Dag Hammarhuld, past Secretary General of the United Nations, once made a profound, far-reaching statement. It is more noble to give yourself completely to one individual than to labor diligently for the salvation of the masses. I take that to mean that I could devote 8, 10, or 12 hours a day, 5, 6, or 7 days a week to the thousands of people and projects out there and still not have a deep, meaningful relationship with my own spouse, with my own teenage son, with my closest working associate. And it would take more nobility of character, more humility, courage, and strength. To rebuild that one relationship than it would to continue putting in all those hours for all those people and causes. In 25 years of consulting with organizations, I have been impressed over and over again by the power of that statement. Many of the problems in organizations stem from relationship difficulties at the very top, between two partners in a professional firm, between the owner and the president of a company, between the president and an executive vice president. It truly takes more nobility of character to confront and resolve those issues than it does to continue to diligently work for the many projects and people out there. When I first came across Hammarhold's statement, I was working in an organization where there were unclear expectations between the individual who was my right-hand man and myself. I simply did not have the courage to confront our differences regarding role and goal expectations and values, particularly in our methods of administration. So I worked for a number of months in a compromise mode to avoid what might turn out to be an ugly confrontation. All the while, bad feelings were developing inside both of us. After reading that it is more noble to give yourself completely to one individual than to labor diligently for the salvation of the masses, I was deeply affected by the idea of rebuilding that relationship. I had to steel myself for what lay ahead, because I knew it would be hard to really get the issues out and to achieve a deep, common understanding and commitment. I remember actually shaking in anticipation of the visit. He seemed like such a hard man, so set in his own ways and so right in his own eyes, yet I needed his strengths and abilities. I was afraid a confrontation might jeopardize the relationship and result in my losing those strengths. I went through a mental dress rehearsal of the anticipated visit, and I finally became settled within myself around the principles rather than the practices of what I was going to do and say. At last I felt peace of mind and the courage to have the communication. When we met together, to my total surprise, I discovered that this man had been going through the very same process and had been longing for such a conversation. He was anything but hard and defensive. 
Nevertheless, our administrative styles were considerably different, and the entire organization was responding to these differences. We both acknowledged the problems that our disunity had created. Over several visits, we were able to confront the deeper issues, to get them all out on the table, and to resolve them, one by one, with the spirit of high mutual respect. We were able to develop a powerful complementary team and a deep personal affection which added tremendously to our ability to work effectively together. Creating the unity necessary to run an effective business or a family or a marriage requires great personal strength and courage. No amount of technical administrative skill in laboring for the masses can make up for lack of nobility of personal character in developing relationships. It is at a very essential, one-on-one -on -one level, that we live the primary laws of love and life. Problems are PC opportunities. This experience also taught me another powerful paradigm of interdependence. It deals with the way in which we see problems. I had lived for months trying to avoid the problem, seeing it as a source of irritation, a stumbling block, and wishing it would somehow go away. But, as it turned out, the very problem created the opportunity to build a deep relationship that empowered us to work together as a strong complementary team. I suggest that in an interdependent situation, every P problem is a PC opportunity, a chance to build the emotional bank accounts that significantly affect interdependent production. When parents see their children's problems as opportunities to build the relationship instead of as negative, burdensome irritations, it totally changes the nature of parent-child interaction. Parents become more willing, even excited, about deeply understanding and helping their children. When a child comes to them with a problem, instead of thinking, oh, no, not another problem. Their paradigm is, here is a great opportunity for me to really help my child and to invest in our relationship. Many interactions change from transactional to transformational, and strong bonds of love and trust are created as children sense the value parents give to their problems and to them as individuals. This paradigm is powerful in business as well. One department store chain that operates from this paradigm has created a great loyalty among its customers. Anytime a customer comes into the store with a problem, no matter how small, the clerks immediately see it as an opportunity to build the relationship with the customer. They respond with a cheerful, positive desire to solve the problem in a way that will make the customer happy. They treat the customer with such grace and respect, giving such second mile service, that many of the customers don't even think of going anywhere else. By recognizing that the P-PC balance is necessary to effectiveness in an interdependent reality, we can value our problems as opportunities to increase PC. The Habits of Interdependence With the paradigm of the emotional bank account in mind, we're ready to move into the habits of public victory, of success in working with other people. As we do, we can see how these habits work together to create effective interdependence. We can also see how powerfully scripted we are in other patterns of thought and behavior. In addition, we can see on an even deeper level that effective interdependence can only be achieved by truly independent people. It is impossible to achieve public victory with popular win-slash-win negotiation techniques or reflective listening techniques or creative problem-solving techniques that focus on personality and truncate the vital character base. Let's now focus on each of the public victory habits in depth. Some of the details of this story have been changed to protect the privacy of those involved. Habit 4. Think win-slash-win. Principles of Interpersonal Leadership. We have committed the golden rule to memory. Let us now commit it to life. Edwin Markham One time I was asked to work with a company whose president was very concerned about the lack of cooperation among his people. Our basic problem, Stephen, is that they're selfish, he said. They just won't cooperate. I know if they would cooperate, we could produce so much more. Can you help us develop a human relations program that will solve the problem? Is your problem the people or the paradigm? I asked. Look for yourself. He replied. So I did. And I found that there was a real selfishness, an unwillingness to cooperate, a resistance to authority, defensive communication. I could see that overdrawn emotional bank accounts had created a culture of low trust. But I pressed the question. Let's look at it deeper, I suggested. Why don't your people cooperate? What is the reward for not cooperating? There's no reward for not cooperating, he assured me. The rewards are much greater if they do cooperate. Are they? I asked. Behind a curtain on one wall of this man's office was a chart. On the chart were a number of racehorses all lined up on a track. Superimposed on the face of each horse was the face of one of his managers. At the end of the track was a beautiful travel poster of Bermuda, 
an idyllic picture of blue skies and fleecy clouds and a romantic couple walking hand in hand down a white sandy beach. Once a week, this man would bring all his people into this office and talk cooperation. Let's all work together. We'll all make more money if we do. Then he would pull the curtain and show them the chart. Now which of you is going to win the trip to Bermuda? It was like telling one flower to grow and watering another, like saying firings will continue until Morel improves. He wanted cooperation. He wanted his people to work together, to share ideas, to all benefit from the effort. But he was setting them up in competition with each other. One manager's success meant failure for the other managers. As with many, many problems between people in business, family, and other relationships, the problem in this company was the result of a flawed paradigm. The president was trying to get the fruits of cooperation from a paradigm of competition. And when it didn't work, he wanted a technique, a program, a quick fix antidote to make his people cooperate. But you can't change the fruit without changing the root. Working on the attitudes and behaviors would have been hacking at the leaves. So we focused instead on producing personal and organizational excellence in an entirely different way by developing information and reward systems which reinforce the value of cooperation. Whether you are the president of a company or the janitor, the moment you step from independence into interdependence in any capacity, you step into a leadership role. You are in a position of influencing other people. And the habit of effective interpersonal leadership is think win slash win. Six paradigms of human interaction. Win slash win is not a technique, it's a total philosophy of human interaction. In fact, it is one of six paradigms of interaction. The alternative paradigms are win slash lose, lose slash win, lose slash lose, win, and win slash win or no deal. Win slash win. Lose slash lose. Win slash lose. Lose slash win. Win. Win slash win or no deal. Win slash win. Win slash win is a frame of mind and heart that constantly seeks mutual benefit in all human interactions. Win slash win means that agreements or solutions are mutually beneficial, mutually satisfying. With a win slash win solution, all parties feel good about the decision and feel committed to the action plan. Win slash win sees life as a cooperative, not a competitive arena. Most people tend to think in terms of dichotomies, strong or weak, hardball or softball, win or lose. But that kind of thinking is fundamentally flawed. It's based on power and position rather than on principle. Win slash win is based on the paradigm that there is plenty for everybody, that one person's success is not achieved at the expense or exclusion of the success of others. Win slash win is a belief in the third alternative. It's not your way or my way, it's a better way, a higher way. Win slash lose. One alternative to win slash win is win slash lose, the paradigm of the race to Bermuda. It says if I win, you'll lose. In leadership style, win slash lose is the authoritarian approach, I get my way, you don't get yours. Win slash lose people are prone to use position, power, credentials, possessions, or personality to get their way. Most people have been deeply scripted in the win slash lose mentality since birth. First and most important of the powerful forces at work is the family. When one child is compared with another one patience, Understanding or love is given or withdrawn on the basis of such comparisons people are into win slash lose thinking. Whenever love is given on a conditional basis, when someone has to earn love, what's being communicated to them is that they are not intrinsically valuable or lovable. Value does not lie inside them, it lies outside. It's in comparison with somebody else or against some expectation. And what happens to a young mind and heart, highly vulnerable? highly dependent upon the support and emotional affirmation of the parents, in the face of conditional love. The child is molded, shaped, and programmed in the win-slash-lose mentality. If I'm better than my brother, my parents will love me more. My parents don't love me as much as they love my sister. I must not be as valuable. Another powerful scripting agency is the peer group. A child first wants acceptance from his parents and then from his peers, whether they be siblings or friends. And we all know how cruel peers sometimes can be. They often accept or reject totally on the basis of conformity to their expectations and norms, providing additional scripting toward win-slash-lose. The academic world reinforces win-slash-lose scripting. The normal distribution curve basically says that you got an A because someone else got a C. It interprets an individual's value by comparing him or her to everyone else. No recognition is given to intrinsic value, everyone is extrinsically defined. Oh. How nice to see you here at our PTA meeting. You ought to be really proud of your daughter, Caroline. She's in the upper 
That makes me feel good. But your son, Johnny, is in trouble. He's in the lower quartile. Really? Oh, that's terrible. What can we do about it? What this kind of comparative information doesn't tell you is that perhaps Johnny is going on all eight cylinders while Caroline is coasting on four of her eight. But people are not graded against their potential or against the full use of their present capacity. They are graded in relation to other people. And grades are carriers of social value, they open doors of opportunity or they close them. Competition, not cooperation, lies at the core of the educational process. Cooperation, in fact, is usually associated with cheating. Another powerful programming agent is athletics, particularly for young men in their high school or college years. Often they develop the basic paradigm that life is a big game, a zero-sum game where some win and some lose. Winning is beating in the athletic arena. Another agent is law. We live in a litigious society. The first thing many people think about when they get into trouble is suing someone, taking them to court, winning at someone else's expense. But defensive minds are neither creative nor cooperative. Certainly we need law or else society will deteriorate. It provides survival, but it doesn't create synergy. At best it results in compromise. Law is based on an adversarial concept. The recent trend of encouraging lawyers and law schools to focus on peaceable negotiation, the techniques of win-slash-win, and the use of private courts, may not provide the ultimate solution, but it does reflect a growing awareness of the problem. Certainly there is a place for win-slash-lose thinking in truly competitive and low-trust situations. But most of life is not a competition. We don't have to live each day competing with our spouse, our children, our co-workers, our neighbors, and our friends. Who's winning in your marriage? Is a ridiculous question. If both people aren't winning, both are losing. Most of life is an interdependent, not an independent, reality. Most results you want depend on cooperation between you and others and the win-slash-lose mentality is dysfunctional to that cooperation. Lose-slash-win Some people are programmed the other way lose-slash-win. I lose, you win. Go ahead. Have your way with me. Step on me again. Everyone does. I'm a loser. I've always been a loser. I'm a peacemaker. I'll do anything to keep peace. Lose-slash-win is worse than win-slash-lose because it has no standards no demands, no expectations. No vision. People who think lose slash win are usually quick to please or appease. They seek strength from popularity or acceptance. They have little courage to express their own feelings and convictions and are easily intimidated by the ego strength of others. In negotiation, lose slash win is seen as capitulation giving in or giving up. In leadership style, it's permissiveness or indulgence. Lose slash win means being a nice guy, even if nice guys finish last. Win-slash-lose people love lose-slash-win people because they can feed on them. They love their weaknesses they take advantage of them. Such weaknesses complement their strengths. But the problem is that lose-slash-win people bury a lot of feelings. And unexpressed feelings never die, they're buried alive and come forth later in uglier ways. Psychosomatic illnesses, particularly of the respiratory, nervous, and circulatory systems often are the reincarnation of cumulative resentment deep disappointment and disillusionment repressed by the lose-slash-win mentality, disproportionate rage or anger, overreaction to minor provocation, and cynicism are other embodiments of suppressed emotion. People who are constantly repressing, not transcending feelings towards a higher meaning find that it affects the quality of their self-esteem and eventually the quality of their relationships with others. Both win-slash-lose and lose-slash-win are weak positions, based in personal insecurities. In the short run, Win-slash-lose will produce more results because it draws on the often considerable strengths and talents of the people at the top. Lose-slash-win is weak and chaotic from the outset. Many executives, managers, and parents swing back and forth, as if on a pendulum, from win-slash-lose in consideration to lose-slash-win indulgence. When they can't stand confusion and lack of structure, direction, expectation, and discipline any longer, they swing back to win-slash-lose until guilt undermines their resolve and drives them back to lose-slash-win until anger and frustration drive them back to win-slash-lose again. Lose-slash-lose When two win-slash-lose people get together that is, when two determined, stubborn, ego-invested individuals interact the result will be lose-slash-lose. Both will lose. Both will become vindictive and want to get back or get even, blind to the fact that murder is suicide, that revenge is a two-edged sword. 
I know of a divorce in which the husband was directed by the judge to sell the assets and turn over half the proceeds to his ex-wife. In compliance, he sold a car worth over $10,000 for $50 and gave $25 to the wife. When the wife protested, the court clerk checked on the situation and discovered that the husband was proceeding in the same manner systematically through all of the assets. Some people become so centered on an enemy, so totally obsessed with the behavior of another person that they become blind to everything except their desire for that person to lose, even if it means losing themselves. Lose slash lose is the philosophy of adversarial conflict, the philosophy of war. Lose slash lose is also the philosophy of the highly dependent person without inner direction who is miserable and thinks everyone else should be, too. If nobody ever wins, perhaps being a loser isn't so bad. Win. Another common alternative is simply to think win. People with the win mentality don't necessarily want someone else to lose. That's irrelevant. What matters is that they get what they want. When there is no sense of contest or competition, win is probably the most common approach in everyday negotiation. A person with the win mentality thinks in terms of securing his own ends and leaving it to others to secure theirs. Which option is best? Of these five philosophies discussed so far win slash win, win slash lose, lose slash win, lose slash lose, and win which is the most effective? The answer is, it depends. If you win a football game, that means the other team loses. If you work in a regional office that is miles away from another regional office, and you don't have any functional relationship between the offices, you may want to compete in a win-slash-lose situation to stimulate business. However, you would not want to set up a win-slash-lose situation like the race to Bermuda contest within a company or in a situation where you need cooperation among people or groups of people to achieve maximum success. If you value a relationship and the issue isn't really that important, you may want to go for lose-slash-win in some circumstances to genuinely affirm the other person. What I want isn't as important to me as my relationship with you. Let's do it your way this time. You might also go for lose-slash-win if you feel the expense of time and effort to achieve a win of any kind would violate other higher values. Maybe it just isn't worth it. There are circumstances in which you would want to win, and you wouldn't be highly concerned with the relationship of that win to others. If your child's life were in danger, for example, you might be peripherally concerned about other people and circumstances. But saving that life would be supremely important. The best choice, then, depends on reality, the challenge is to read that reality accurately and not to translate win-slash-lose or other scripting into every situation. Most situations, in fact, are part of an interdependent reality, and then win-slash-win is really the only viable alternative of the five. Win-slash-lose is not viable because Although I appear to win in a confrontation with you, your feelings, your attitudes toward me and our relationship have been affected. If I am a supplier to your company, for example, and I win on my terms in a particular negotiation, I may get what I want now. But will you come to me again? My short-term win will really be a long-term lose if I don't get your repeat business. So an interdependent win-slash-lose is really lose-slash-lose in the long run. If we come up with a lose-slash-win, you may appear to get what you want for the moment. But how will that affect my attitude about working with you, about fulfilling the contract? I may not feel as anxious to please you. I may carry battle scars with me into any future negotiations. My attitude about you and your company may be spread as I associate with others in the industry. So we're into lose slash lose again. Lose slash lose obviously isn't viable in any context. And if I focus on my own win and don't even consider your point of view, there's no basis for any kind of productive relationship. In the long run, if it isn't a win for both of us, we both lose. That's why win-slash-win is the only real alternative in interdependent realities. I worked with a client once, the president of a large chain of retail stores, who said, Stephen, this win-slash-win idea sounds good, but it is so idealistic. The tough, realistic business world isn't like that. There's win-slash-lose everywhere, and if you're not out there playing the game, you just can't make it. Alright, I said. Try going for win-slash-lose with your customers. Is that realistic? Well, no, he replied. Why not? I'd lose my customers. Then, go for lose-slash-win give the store away. Is that realistic? No. No margin, no mission. As we considered the various alternatives, win-slash-win appeared to be the only truly realistic approach. I guess that's true with customers, he admitted, but not with suppliers. You are the customer of the supplier, I said. Why doesn't the same principle apply? 
Well, we recently renegotiated our lease agreements with the mall operators and owners, he said. We went in with a win-slash-win attitude. We were open, reasonable, conciliatory. But they saw that position as being soft and weak, and they took us to the cleaners. Well, why did you go for lose-slash-win? I asked. We didn't. We went for win-slash-win. I thought you said they took you to the cleaners. They did. In other words, you lost. That's right. And they won. That's right. So what's that called? When he realized that what he had called win-slash-win was really lose-slash-win, he was shocked. And as we examined the long-term impact of that lose-slash-win, the suppressed feelings, the trampled values, the resentment that seethed under the surface of the relationship, we agreed that it was really a loss for both parties in the end. If this man had had a real win-slash-win attitude, he would have stayed longer in the communication process, listened to the mall owner more, then expressed his point of view with more courage. He would have continued in the win-slash-win spirit until a solution was reached they both felt good about. And that solution, that third alternative, would have been synergistic probably something neither of them had thought of on his own. Win-slash-win or no deal. If these individuals had not come up with a synergistic solution one that was agreeable to both they could have gone for an even higher expression of win-slash-win-win-slash-win or no deal. No deal basically means that if we can't find a solution that would benefit us both, we agree to disagree agreeably no deal. No expectations have been created, no performance contracts established. I don't hire you or we don't take on a particular assignment together because it's obvious that our values are our goals are going in opposite directions. It is so much better to realize this up front instead of downstream when expectations have been created and both parties have been disillusioned. When you have no deal as an option in your mind, you feel liberated because you have no need to manipulate people, to push your own agenda, to drive for what you want. You can be open. You can really try to understand the deeper issues underlying the positions. With no deal as an option, you can honestly say, I only want to go for win slash win. I want to win, and I want you to win. I wouldn't want to get my way and have you not feel good about it, because downstream it would eventually surface and create a withdrawal. On the other hand, I don't think you would feel good if you got your way and I gave in. So let's work for a win slash win. Let's really hammer it out. And if we can't find it, then let's agree that. We won't make a deal at all. It would be better not to deal than to live with a decision that wasn't right for us both. Then maybe another time we might be able to get together. Sometime after learning the concept of win slash win or no deal, the president of a small computer software company shared with me the following experience. We had developed new software which we sold on a five-year contract to a particular bank. The bank president was excited about it, but his people weren't really behind the decision. About a month later, that bank changed presidents. The new president came to me and said, I am uncomfortable with these software conversions. I have a mess on my hands. My people are all saying that they can't go through this and I really feel I just can't push it at this point in time. My own company was in deep financial trouble. I knew I had every legal right to enforce the contract. But I had become convinced of the value of the principle of win slash win. So I told him we have a contract. Your bank has secured our products and our services to convert you to this program. But we understand that you're not happy about it. So what we'd like to do is give you back the contract, give you back your deposit. And if you are ever looking for a software solution in the future, come back and see us. I literally walked away from an $84,000 contract. It was close to financial suicide. But I felt that, in the long run, if the principle were true, it would come back and pay dividends. Three months later, the new president called me. I'm now going to make changes in my data processing, he said, and I want to do business with you. He signed a contract for $240,000. Anything less than win slash win in an interdependent reality is a poor second best that will have impact in the long-term relationship. The cost of that impact needs to be carefully considered. If you can't reach a true win slash win, you're very often better off to go for no deal. Win slash win or no deal provides tremendous emotional freedom in the family relationship. If family members can't agree on a video that everyone will enjoy, they can simply decide to do something else no deal rather than having some enjoy the evening at the expense of others. I have a friend whose family has been involved in singing together for several years. When they were young, she arranged the music, made the costumes, accompanied them on the piano and directed the performances. As the children grew older, their taste in music began to change and they wanted to have more say in what they performed and what they wore. 
they became less responsive to direction. Because she had years of experience in performing herself and felt closer to the needs of the older people at the rest homes where they planned to perform, she didn't feel that many of the ideas they were suggesting would be appropriate. At the same time, however, she recognized their need to express themselves and to be part of the decision-making process. So she set up a win-slash-win-or-no deal. She told them she wanted to arrive at an agreement that everyone felt good about or they would simply find other ways to enjoy their talents. As a result, everyone felt free to express his or her feelings and ideas as they worked to set up a win-slash-win agreement, knowing that whether or not they could agree, there would be no emotional strings. The win-slash-win-or-no-deal approach is most realistic at the beginning of a business relationship or enterprise. In a continuing business relationship, no deal may not be a viable option, which can create serious problems, especially for family businesses or businesses that are begun initially on the basis of friendship. In an effort to preserve the relationship, people sometimes go on for years making one compromise after another, thinking win-slash-lose or lose-slash-win even while talking win-slash-win. This creates serious problems for the people and for the business, particularly if the competition operates on win-slash-win and synergy. Without no deal, many such businesses simply deteriorate and either fail or have to be turned over to professional managers. Experience shows that it is often better in setting up a family business or a business between friends to acknowledge the possibility of no deal downstream and to establish some kind of buy-slash-sell agreement so that the business can prosper without permanently damaging the relationship. Of course there are some relationships where no deal is not viable. I wouldn't abandon my child or my spouse and go for no deal, it would be better, if necessary, to go for compromise ALO form of win-slash-win. But in many cases, it is possible to go into negotiation with a full win-slash-win or no deal attitude. And the freedom in that attitude is incredible. 5 Dimensions of Win-slash-Win Think win-slash-win is the habit of interpersonal leadership. It involves the exercise of each of the unique human endowments self-awareness, imagination, conscience, and independent will in our relationships with others. It involves mutual learning, mutual influence, mutual benefits. It takes great courage as well as consideration to create these mutual benefits, particularly if we're interacting with others who are deeply scripted in win-slash-lose. That is why this habit involves principles of interpersonal leadership. Effective interpersonal leadership requires the vision the proactive initiative and the security, guidance, wisdom, and power that come from principle-centered personal leadership. The principle of win-slash-win is fundamental to success in all our interactions, and it embraces five interdependent dimensions of life. It begins with character and moves toward relationships, out of which flow agreements. It is nurtured in an environment where structure and systems are based on win-slash-win. And it involves process, we cannot achieve win-slash-win ends with win-slash-lose or lose-slash-win means. The following diagram shows how these five dimensions relate to each other. Now let's consider each of the five dimensions in turn. Character Character is the foundation of win-slash-win, and everything else builds on that foundation. There are three character traits essential to the win-slash-win paradigm. Integrity We've already defined integrity as the value we place on ourselves. Habits 1, 2, and 3 help us develop and maintain integrity. As we clearly identify our values and proactively organize and execute around those values on a daily basis, we develop self-awareness and independent will by making and keeping meaningful promises and commitments. There's no way to go for a win in our own lives if we don't ever know, in a deep sense, what constitutes a win what is, in fact, harmonious with our innermost values. And if we can't make and keep commitments to ourselves as well as to others, our commitments become meaningless. We know it, others know it. They sense duplicity and become guarded. There's no foundation of trust and win-slash-win becomes an ineffective superficial technique. Integrity is the cornerstone in the foundation. Maturity. Maturity is the balance between courage and consideration. I first learned this definition of maturity in the fall of 1955 from a marvelous professor, Rin Saxanian, who instructed my control class at the Harvard Business School. He taught the finest, simplest, most practical, yet profound, definition of emotional maturity I've ever come across the ability to express one's own feelings and convictions balanced with consideration for the thoughts and feelings of others. As a part of his doctoral research, Rin Saxanian had developed this criterion over years of historical and direct field research. He later wrote up his original research format and its completeness with supportive reasoning and application suggestions in a Harvard Business Review article, January to February 1958. 
even though it is complementary and also developmental, Rin's use of the word maturity is different from its use in the Seven Habits Maturity Continuum, which focuses on a growth and development process from dependency through independency to interdependency. If you examine many of the psychological tests used for hiring, promoting, and training purposes, you will find that they are designed to evaluate this kind of maturity. Whether it's called the ego strength slash empathy balance, the self-confidence slash respect for others balance, the concern for people slash concern for tasks balance, I'm okay, you're okay in transactional analysis language, or 9.1, 1.9, 5.5, 9.9, in management grid language the quality sought for is the balance of what I call courage and consideration. Respect for this quality is deeply ingrained in the theory of human interaction, management, and leadership. It is a deep embodiment of the P-PC balance. While courage may focus on getting the golden egg, consideration deals with the long-term welfare of other stakeholders. The basic task of leadership is to increase the standard of living and the quality of life for all stakeholders. Many people think in dichotomies, in either slash or terms. They think if you're nice, you're not tough. But win slash win is nice, and tough. It's twice as tough as win slash lose, to go for win slash win, you not only have to be nice, you have to be courageous. You not only have to be empathic, you have to be confident. You not only have to be considerate and sensitive, you have to be brave. To do that, to achieve that balance between courage and consideration, is the essence of real maturity and is fundamental to win slash win. If I'm high on courage and low on consideration, how will I think? Win slash lose. I'll be strong and ego bound. I'll have the courage of my convictions, but I won't be very considerate of yours. To compensate for my lack of internal maturity and emotional strength, I might borrow strength from my position and power, or from my credentials, my seniority, my affiliations. If I'm high on consideration and low on courage, I'll think lose slash win. I'll be so considerate of your convictions and desires that I won't have the courage to express and actualize my own. High courage and consideration are both essential to win slash win. It is the balance that is the mark of real maturity. If I have it, I can listen, I can empathically understand, but I can also courageously confront. Abundance Mentality The third character trait essential to winning word is the abundance mentality, the paradigm that there is plenty out there for everybody. Most people are deeply scripted in what I call the scarcity mentality. They see life as having only so much, as though there were only one pie out there. And if someone were to get a big piece of the pie, it would mean less for everybody else. The scarcity mentality is the zero-sum paradigm of life. People with a scarcity mentality have a very difficult time sharing recognition and credit, power or profit even with those who help in the production. They also have a very hard time being genuinely happy for the successes of other people even, and sometimes especially, members of their own family or close friends and associates. It's almost as if something is being taken from them when someone else receives special recognition or windfall gain or has remarkable success or achievement. Although they might verbally express happiness for others' success, inwardly they are eating their hearts out. Their sense of worth comes from being compared, and someone else's success, to some degree, means their failure. Only so many people can be a students, only one person can be number one. To win simply means to beat. Often, people with a scarcity mentality harbor secret hopes that others might suffer misfortune not terrible misfortune, but acceptable misfortune that would keep them in their place. They're always comparing, always competing. They give their energies to possessing things or other people in order to increase their sense of worth. They want other people to be the way they want them to be. They often want to clone them, and they surround themselves with yes people people who won't challenge them, people who are weaker than they. It's difficult for people with a scarcity mentality to be members of a complementary team. They look on differences as signs of insubordination and disloyalty. The abundance mentality, on the other hand, flows out of a deep inner sense of personal worth and security. It is the paradigm that there is plenty out there and enough to spare for everybody. It results in sharing of prestige, of recognition, of profits, of decision-making. It opens possibilities, options, alternatives, and creativity. The abundance mentality takes the personal joy, satisfaction, and fulfillment of habits 1, 2, and 3 and turns it outward, appreciating the uniqueness, the inner direction, the proactive nature of others. It recognizes the unlimited possibilities for positive interactive growth and development, creating new third alternatives. Public victory does not mean victory over other people. 
It means success in effective interaction that brings mutually beneficial results to everyone involved. Public victory means working together, communicating together, making things happen together that even the same people couldn't make happen by working independently. And public victory is an outgrowth of the abundance mentality paradigm. A character rich in integrity, maturity, and the abundance mentality has a genuineness that goes far beyond technique, or lack of it, in human interaction. One thing I have found particularly helpful to win-slash-lose people in developing a win-slash-win character is to associate with some model or mentor who really thinks win-slash-win. When people are deeply scripted in win-slash-lose or other philosophies and regularly associate with others who are likewise scripted, they don't have much opportunity to see and experience the win-slash-win philosophy in action. So I recommend reading literature, such as the inspiring biography of Anwar Sadat.